0: Pastor Joel raised some important thoughts in staff meeting some weeks ago about a caution that as we head toward fall, and I asked him to share it with the Eaglemont family uh, together here and those engaging online uh, today. But as it turned out, he's he's off for uh, a few days. But I wanted these thoughts to be conveyed before we hit summer months, and so uh, I'm sharing them with you on, on, well, on his behalf, but really as we talked as a staff team, uh, on behalf of the whole pastoral team, really, over the last year and a half, we've all given up much, and we've missed out on many uh, good and normal and and life-giving things and activities and events, and in that... As spiritual leaders, we, we have a concern, actually, and, and, and share this caution that as we look to a new fall season of life, some uh, may be tempted, and the easy thing to do it, it would be to, to overfill uh, our calendar, to, to kind of make up for what we've missed in the last year and a half. And we're just with these words encouraging you to think about how, how easy it will be to become overcommitted with things that, that may be good things. But all of us probably know that good things can sometimes take the place of the best things. And so as your pastors were humbly asking that you as you head into summer uh, summer July August great opportunity to carve out some time to prayerfully think about this. And we encourage you to spend time talking to God, asking for his help as you plan fall activities for you and your uh, and your family and if you have kids for your kids determine what God might say, what God wants to say should be your priorities ask him to help you have an approach to filling your calendar that will allow for a healthy life pattern and a and a and a rhythm that prioritizes space for engagement in that which will bring spiritual growth and and vitality to you uh, like like the commitment to connecting uh, with your church family and the Sunday gathering or the commitment to be a part of a small group through the fall as again we do our same page focus uh, Sunday mornings in small groups for eight weeks in tandem for those that don't know what that term is and, and, and things like that. So again, we're simply asking you to, to take time this summer to talk to God about what, um, about what are His priorities for you and your family as, as you move into a new fall season. So thanks for hearing this uh, admonition given in love this morning. Now, we're diving in. We continue in our three-week series, Unhurry, with the topic today of simplicity. Simplicity. Uh, Key references for this message, as always, obviously, the Bible, uh, there's a couple of resources, and you were introduced to one last week, but uh, John Mark Comer's book, the, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and Richard J. Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline, which is a classic book on, on spiritual disciplines. I encourage you to, to get and read that book as well. And and Pastor Brennan, in his message last week, introduced you to uh, the ruthless elimination of hurry. So drawing primarily from from those two sources uh, this morning in the Word of God. God, open your Word to our hearts and our hearts to your Word this morning, in Jesus' name. If you heard my message two Sundays ago in our uh, Does the Bible Really Say That series, we talked about. Does the Bible really say money is the root of all evil? In that, you'll notice some overlap for sure in today's message and that message. And that wasn't, by us anyways, pre-planned. Uh, but maybe God has some things he wants to reiterate in our, some of our hearts and minds in these things. So, what comes to mind when I say Jesus calls us as his followers to live in simplicity what's your reaction is it no no there's too much good stuff i might miss out on probably a probably a fairly normal reaction living in simplicity is viewed as a spiritual discipline because it's 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 countercultural isn't it we have a natural inner desire to uh, to feel secure in life but we can easily look the wrong direction to fill that need and we begin to crave things we don't need and things that won't ultimately uh, that we won't ultimately enjoy because we're 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 placing those things in a role in our lives that they were never intended to fill living in a constant pursuit of more puts us on the high-speed treadmill of a hurried life. So what can we do to unhurry? It's tough in this culture. That's a challenge. That's a challenge. So let's first look at the biblical foundation for simplicity. In the celebration of discipline, Foster points out that Jesus speaks to the question of economics more than any other societal, uh, social issue. And then goes on to point out in that book uh, that, that back then when Jesus talked about the, the, the issues of economics and, and money, in a comparatively uh, simple society, our, our Lord, he, he lays out a fairly strong emphasis upon the spiritual dangers of wealth. How much more should we who live in this highly uh, materialistic culture take seriously these warnings of Jesus? And as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago in that message, it's not wealth that's necessarily the issue, but rather the potential uh, attachment of our hearts to it. That's Jesus' warning. Jesus addressed the heart of the issue directly in Luke 16 where he said, No servant uh, can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and, he says, mammon. Now mammon is the Aramaic term for riches. And Jesus identifies riches as a potential rival to God's rightful place of allegiance in our lives. And important to notice, Jesus, Jesus didn't say you shouldn't serve God and money. No, he, he said you can't. It's not possible. Living the way of Jesus and getting sucked into the overconsumption that is normal in our, in our culture, they're, they're mutually exclusive. You, you, you can't have both. Then in Matthew 19, Jesus graphically described the challenge of a rich person entering the kingdom of heaven by likening it to a camel going through the eye of a needle. Interesting. And there's there's various uh, ideas about where that specific analogy originates from. But but his caution, Jesus adds this in in that caution, he adds this clarifier where he simply says, "Okay, that's tough, but with God, all things are possible. That's good." In verse 26 of of Matthew 19, so a rich person can certainly get to heaven if they choose, like all of us have to do, to trust in Jesus and not in their wealth in life, which which Jesus is saying is, is very easy to do, to trust in our wealth. And then Jesus' words in Luke 12, 15, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I think we subtly come to believe that, or at least we we live as if that is our belief. Now, we can't automatically think that these words from Jesus are for someone else who is truly rich. Right? That's what we tend to do. Oh, oh, that's, that's that's for rich people. Who's rich? Well, we're all actually in this room, those watching online, are rich. We're all in that category. Food for the Hungry website refers to a paper from the World Bank, and this goes back a few years, several years, but explaining that if you make more than $50,000 a year, you're among the top 1% of the world's richest people. Think about that. In addition to the words of Jesus, other New Testament writers also express significant concern about the potential dangers of wealth and greed uh, that that easily lead us in the opposite direction of simplicity and of of trusting Christ with everything, right? From a chapter that we focused on again a couple of weeks ago uh, in our Love of Money message, 1 Timothy 6.9, people who long. Let's go, where is it now? There it is. People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Pretty graphic. It's not good. It's not good. And then a few verses later, 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18, command those who are rich in this present world to do good, to be rich in good deeds. That's the better way to be rich and to be generous and willing to share. And then another great verse, Hebrews, in the New Testament, chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And we talked about contentment a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Because, that verse says, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So you don't have to uh, pursue the accumulation of wealth to, to, to bring security in your life. God wants to fill that role. That's what it comes down to so many times. You see, our sense of security in life must come from knowing that God is with us. That, that, again, as he said in this verse, never will I leave you or forsake you. Many people lack a true sense, as, as I've said already uh, a few moments ago, a, a true sense of security in life. And so they seek to establish that, that security. And one of the only ways our culture has to offer security that really isn't security at all, namely, again, personal wealth. So, that's a quick look at some of the key foundation scriptures uh, on this topic, but, but we know that wherever God has a truth, the enemy of our souls provides and comes up with a lie. Satan does that. And Satan isn't some little guy with a pitchfork and a red tail, a red suit, And no, he's, uh, for those that don't know, the Bible says that he uh, cre- was created by God as an angel in heaven, but pride entered his heart and... He got the boot from heaven along with a bunch of angels that followed him. So he is out to intercept, to interrupt any good thing that God has. And it's no different in this area. And here's his lie. Here's the lie. More stuff equals more happiness. So commonly thought to be true. More stuff equals more happiness. Sociologist Jean uh, Baudrillard said that in the Western world, materialism has become the new dominant system of meaning. He goes on um, to uh, to say that, to argue that he says atheism hasn't replaced cultural Christianity or Christianity in our culture. He says shopping has. <laughs> Interesting. Comer points out that in a relatively short period of time, uh, over several decades, we went from most of what we owned being genuine needs to wants. And he points out that there has been a a targeted and intentional strategy to shape culture around consumerism. It's a little scary. Think about it. One author has called this the the thingification, (laughs) thingification of North America. All with the idea of that's the way to happiness, to contentment, to fulfillment. One Wall Street banker said this, we must shift America from a needs culture to a desires culture. People must be trained to want new things even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. A person's desires must overshadow their needs. Wow. If you... Doubt that statement. Think through your own purchases over the last few years. Why is it that some of you feel you're missing out if you don't get the iPhone right away every time the newest one is introduced? Any, con- any people can, no, don't raise your hand. Or, or as others have pointed out, why is it that just in the last few decades our, our houses ha- ha- have grown to twice the size and, and the typical family is half the size? of some decades ago. Interesting. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that in order to please Jesus, we need to go back to the days of the outhouse and the wood-burning stove in the, to, you know, to, heat our, to heat our homes. Anybody remember those days? Oh, look at... Oh, so, okay, let's give these people a hand. You, you may think I'm that old. I'm not. We didn't have those. But the generation before, Right? So it's not about that. My simple point is that the propaganda of advertising that keeps us incessantly unsatisfied so we continue to purchase things we don't need with money we don't have in order to find meaning and happiness is one of the biggest lies that our modern culture has convinced many of. And again, it's the quest for more that keeps our lives spinning at this hurried, frenetic pace, isn't it? In the book entitled An Unhurried Life Following the Rhythms of Work and Rest, a Following Jesus Rhythm of Work and Rest, the author says this simply, the drive to possess is an engine for hurry. It's true. You've you've probably seen it in your own life at times. The, the, The drive to possess is an engine for this hurried Lifestyle that is not honoring to Christ or healthy for our lives and relationships. Most of you can see that. Some of you are living that right now, maybe. Part of the reason for that is that the more stuff we have, the more our, our attention, our time, our money, that it further demands from us. John Mark Comer, again, in uh, the book we've referenced, writes, What if more stuff actually equals less of what matters most? Less time, less financial freedom, less generosity, which, according to Jesus, is where the real joy is. Less peace as I hurry my way through the mall parking lot, he says, less focus on what life is actually about, less mental real estate for creativity, less relationships, less margin, less prayer, less of what I actually ache for. Huh. Some very good food for thought in that paragraph. Now, let's look at cultivating a heart of simplicity. Uh, the, the, the simplicity way of living, and we're going to get to some specifics on that as we conclude today, but the specific, uh, the, sorry, the simplicity way of living must start in our heart and in our thinking patterns, right? Like anything. Any change we want to bring in our life must start mind, heart. Because what we think about and what we train our heart to long for, and we can, we can, tra- we can train our heart to long for what God wants us to long for, and that's the, that's the role of God's Word, uh, put into our lives consistently. Those things will inform our actions and uh, obviously influence how we live. Now, there's something called asceticism that uh, over the centuries, some Christians have engaged in as a spiritual practice. Asceticism, in a simplistic um, definition, is really a, a complete renouncing of rejection of possessions. That's not what this biblical idea of simplicity is. Simplicity sets possessions in their proper perspective. Simplicity does not view possessions as sinful, but rather comes to rejoice in God's gracious provision of many good things in life without those things becoming what our hearts long for or that we become overly enamored with or enamored with at all. Does that make sense? The words of Jesus from Matthew 6 are really the focal point of what it means to live in simplicity. In verse 25, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you drink. Don't worry about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? And then he goes on to talk in that passage about the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, they're taken care of by their creator. And the implication is, so you can too rely on him. And then, Picking it up in verse 31 of Matthew 6, Jesus' words. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. Now, the word pagan is just an old biblical word that references people that just have, have no need for God and keep God and his ways out of their out of their perspective and out of their out of their way of living okay so jesus uses that word the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows what you need or that you need them but verse 33 seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and then what what's going to happen jesus says then all these things will be added to you as well cool cool we won't lack god will provide and the new testament makes that clear right that's so good. The fundamental starting point and, and the bullseye on the target of living in simplicity is found in verse 33, that we are to seek first his kingdom. That's just, a, that's just a, a way of saying, seek God's heart, seek his ways, seek his best plan for your life, and it's right here. It'll be that genuine seeking of God and his kingdom or, or his way of doing things that will keep our hearts free from the love of wealth and of the, the accumulation of it as our, our primary goal in life, which is a, a very temporary, very short-sighted goal because there's an eternity, right? Freedom From anxiety about what we may or may not possess is the inward evidence that we are seeking the kingdom of God first. I love what Foster wrote in Celebration of Discipline. He says, the inward reality of simplicity involves, here, listen, a life of joyful unconcern for possessions. I've read that book years ago, but in my study I reread that, that jumped out at me. Joyful unconcern for possessions. How uncommon is that in our society? How uncommon is that in our own lives? I mean, think about that. Unconcern about joyful unconcern for what I possess. How unconcerned are you regarding the things you possess? And and, and joyfully so. I, I I was challenged by that statement. And and living with joyful unconcern has little to do uh, with how much or how uh, little we possess. Rather, it's an inward spirit of trust in our provider that brings uh, us into this joyful unconcern about our possessions because we know God provides what we need, when we need it. Very quickly, three important inner attitudes that are essential if we are to move toward living out the spiritual discipline of simplicity. Three things. The attitude and understanding that whatever we possess is a gift from God. I mean, most of you, you know that. And you receive these gifts, recognizing So many of you, I believe you do that. That's awesome. Secondly, all that we possess is God's concern. So, in other words, he can, he can preserve it, or in his sovereign wisdom, he can take it away. And either is okay. So to... To the level I trust him, my anxiety about what I own uh, uh, dissipates. Okay? Number three, whatever we possess must always be available to be shared. And again, I see, I, I, I see this so often in so many of your lives, and I'm, I'm inspired and encouraged by it. But, but sadly, for some people, living generously and, and sharing their money and possessions is difficult because they're, they're, they're anxious about the future. They think that if I share too much, I might find myself in a position of lack, out of fear. When the reality is, if you share as God leads you, you will not lack. And again, that's the story of so many of you. I know that. So these three attitudes comprise what Christian simplicity really is, and it's when we live this way that we can trust uh, in the words of Jesus from Matthew 6 that then all these things, everything he knows you need, will be added to you, will be given to you by his gracious um, all-providing all, all hands, right? God knows our needs and is more than able to provide everything we need at any given time, so we, we need not fear sharing or being generous. Now, let's conclude by looking at what living out simplicity looks like. Uh, inner, inner attitudes, very important. They are what lead us to outward adjustments in how we actually live. And so let's consider the adjustments that may need to be made in our lives in, in order to live this way of Jesus, in living simply. There's one, I forget who it was that said it, but li, that we would live simply so that others could simply live. That's cool. That's a part of it. <clears throat> Remember Jesus' words from Luke 12, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. It really doesn't. Don't, don't, let, don't let our culture mislead you. Now, Jesus didn't get specific and say, well, you can't buy more than uh, two pairs of sandals. Uh, you can't have more than two donkeys in the garage. No, it, you know, uh, he, he, just, he just made a statement about the way life works. Namely, that the most important things aren't in your closet. They aren't in your garage. They aren't even in your financial portfolio. The most important things in life, according to Jesus, are, are, are not things at all, but rather they're relationships. Genuine, life-giving relationships, obviously, and primarily with, with God, and, and with family and friends, which can be challenging at times. Maybe the family piece is, you go, life-giving? I don't know if I'd put, you know, sometimes not. God wants to give you the wisdom and guidance to, to, to work through that. But the point is, the things that matter most in life are not things at all, according to Jesus. The, at the end of each of the chapters of the two books I referenced at the beginning of this message, John Mark Comer and uh, Richard Foster uh, share each their own list of uh, guiding principles for living simply. And there's a, there's a bunch of them. Just I thought I'd grab a few and share them briefly with you. Uh, things like, never impulse buy. Develop the habit of giving things away. Recognize advertising for what it is, propaganda. Richard Foster says this, refuse to be propagandized by the custodians of modern gadgetry. I like that statement. And this, I don't know, that book was probably written 30 years ago or whatever. It's like, he he had no idea when he made that modern gadgetry. Oh, a lot of options there. Anyway, another one is reject anything that is producing an addiction in you. Live by a budget. Shun anything that distracts you from seeking first the kingdom of God. And then develop a deeper appreciation for creation and for simple pleasures. Good list. Just just some of the good input from from these two authors. Okay, let's finish now with an action plan for obedient response to God in in a, a strategic and intentional way. Whether you do this alone or with your spouse or with kids in the mix, if you have children uh, i 'm asking you to take i don 't know might take twenty minutes for you and your spouse and your kids involved in the process if you have kids if, if, you, if, you're, uh, if you live alone you can you can do this with a friend and hold each other accountable for this seven day experiment experiments uh, experience uh, adventure call it what you want um, that i 'm going to ask you to do and, and Miriam and I are going to do this as well. This is, I pray that for each one of us, what I'm going to share in a moment will be a God-directed plan for you to bring simplicity, increasingly so, into your heart, into the hearts of your children, um, parents, this is, a, this, is a, this is a great role modeling opportunity. I, I, I pray you'd latch on to this, really. So here are some ideas of uh, strategic commitments that, that you can make your own to lead you uh, or to lead you and your family toward living in simplicity. You may want to take out your phone even right now because the, the, the ideas that I suggest, you might want to just take a picture of the, of the slides of the... Uh, or, or contact me if you miss some of them, or want me to just to email you. Uh, contact me at the church office here, uh, or, or uh, email me Marlo M A R L O at EaglemontChurch.ca. So again, I'm, I'm asking you to make a seven-day commitment to to the list of actions you come up with, with hopes that some of these will become new life patterns for you. And, and if you can't get to it today, you know, you got commitments, Father's Day and different things, then, then I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking that, that might be good to start on a Sunday, but if you know yourself, and you boy, you got to do this sooner than later if you're going to do it, and you do it tomorrow, make, make a plan, uh, and you do it tomorrow, that, and it starts Tuesday, that, that's great too, but you may, if you can't do it today, you might want, okay, next Sunday, I'm going to put it in my calendar, we're going to sit down, we're going to make this plan for a seven-day experience of stretching toward simplicity, okay? You could even sign it after, you know, just sealing the commitment. And you could share your plan with someone else uh, and ask them, hey, would you check in with me midweek to see how I'm doing or how our family is doing in these these things? Really, accountability piece is good. So here are a few ideas that could be included in this seven-day simplicity experience. Doesn't that sound great? Here we go. For the next seven days, no shopping on Amazon. For some of you, that's not a problem. For some of you, that will be a problem. But I believe in you. Okay? Uh, for the next seven days, go through your closet with the aim of giving some things away. Miriam, my dear bride, has been on me for a long time to do this. I'm, 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 I'm mostly joking. We, we actually did this, uh, and, and really not, not, I don't think necessarily connected with this message, but three weeks ago or whatever it was, and there was, there was a pile of clothes that I could continue to wear, but I didn't need that much. And so we found a place uh, to to give it. And and, and again, many of you do that regularly. I know that. Uh, Thirdly, anywhere that you can walk in 10 or 15 minutes, you might want to make that 30 minutes. That's up to you. Leave the car and walk this week. Okay? uh, Hey, right there, you got extra time to talk to God. Fourth, if you normally get a latte from, or uh, whatever, from Starbucks, one of those $40 drinks, uh, every day, choose to make regular coffee at home for the seven-day period, and then give the 25 bucks or whatever it is that you'll save to Eaglemont Missions. I think that's a great idea. Might want to consider that. Fifthly, instead of buying lunch at work, pack a lunch. And with the money you save, listen, sponsor a child with uh, Child Care Plus. That's our uh, PAUC child care program for, for the month. I mean, we just met with Trent and Rhonda Lipinski, the global workers we support in the DR, and they, they have a Child Care Plus program there. There's opportunity, so like, we can put you in touch. We could, this, this can be easy for you. Um, so uh, for the month, and, and do that one week a month for the next 12 months. And for some of you, uh, the amount you eat out in a given week, you, your, your child is supported for a year, and that's cool. And in that, you're developing the, 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 the habit, uh, the, the, the practice uh, of what Jesus talks about, giving to the poor. That's cool. Kids, or kids at heart, if you're going to play a video game, set a time limit of 30 minutes or less. I'm not a gamer, so I don't, I don't get that one. But for some of you, that would be hard. Seventh, two supper meals out of these seven eat only rice and beans and drink water. A lot of the world. That's their daily after day after day intake of nourishment. And in, in many places, one. One meal a day of rice and beans. And eat it with thanksgiving. Hmm. Eighth, take a designated amount from your monthly budget and give, just give to someone in need in your orbit of relationships or a neighbor or someone you're aware of that, that is just in, in need. Ninth, final suggestion that I'm going to make, ask the Holy Spirit what He might want you to do to help you recreate your heart toward or create your heart toward simplicity. These are just examples of, of, of a simplicity strategy, again, that you might settle on as you make your, your plan. I'm asking you to engage with this uh, prayerfully. I, I, I really I, I hope to hear feedback. If you want to send me your plan, I, I would, if you're comfortable with that, I, I would love to see it. I really would. I, and I pray for you in those in those seven days, in that commitment. But, but let God lead you in this, please. It's potentially life changing for you and others in, in honor of Jesus Christ. So I look forward to hearing from you about this. If you're in the gathering this morning in person or you're engaging online and you don't know Jesus Christ personally, He loves you so much, He gave His life. For you. And and as we sung this morning, he didn't stay in the grave by the power of God. He rose from the dead victorious over sin and death. And and, and that that sealed the deal for our eternity. It was that power in the resurrected Christ that, that reminds us that we can have, by trusting Christ as the forgiver of our sin and the leader of our life, we can have eternal, eternal life in God's presence. That life starts today for some of you that, that step across that line of faith and place your trust and surrender to Jesus Christ who is Lord and is and wants to be your Savior. And so if you're making that commitment today, express that on, um, there, there's a, a QR code. Sorry, Jaden, I think you were gonna mention that at the end, but um, it'll bring up a form that'll give you the opportunity to share your contact information, and uh, we, we would love to come alongside you to, to share in the excitement of you making that commitment to Christ of your life and your eternity, your future, and uh, uh, give, you, give you some resources that'll, that'll help you as you establish roots in this new relationship with Jesus. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this time together today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this message of simplicity. Pray you'd guide each one of us this week or next week whenever we we make our plan to open our hearts to living simply so others can simply live. Guide us. And for those that are making a, a commitment or a recommitment to Jesus Christ as the forgiver of their sin, the leader of their life, and they want to walk in relationship with you, help them to sense your peace. And your loving arms around them right now. And to connect with your body as we see is the pattern in the New Testament. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.